You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today's passage is Mark 1, verses 14 to 15. Uh, It's Mark 1, verses 14 to 15. And please rise for the reading of God's word. Again, that's Mark 1, 14 to 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it is awesome just to be able to get back into Mark's gospel here this morning. Um, I should say this too. I mean, it's just a relief to see, you know, all of someone's face and not just this part of someone's face. But uh, we are thrilled, as I mentioned, Danielle, to have you on the team. This this book, um, the book of Mark, really is a wonderful mosaic that Mark, the gospel writer, gives us in putting together what is a magnificent portrait of Jesus himself. And as we saw last week, the baptism of Jesus confirmed his identity as the unique son of God and commenced his ministry as the spirit-anointed servant. Then in looking at the testing of Jesus in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we saw how the battle against the power of darkness has begun and that Jesus succeeded where Adam and Israel failed. And so today we turn to the summary of Jesus' gospel proclamation found in these two short, magnificent verses. I hardly had enough time to grab the mic in time. You might have noticed that's how short this passage is, but this is full of some very significant questions for us. One question that kind of leaps off the page is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, you might think that this is a question that Christians have buttoned up pretty closely. And yet, at times, we have seen how this question has been answered in different ways. You know, the term evangelical comes from euangelion, which means the gospel. Evangelicals are fundamentally gospel people. And yet this term, even in and of itself, has been used in other ways, maybe is used more widely these days as like a political category of sorts. One question that we might wrestle with too is, can evangelical be reclaimed and have new meaning and significance imported into it? I sure hope so. But even more importantly, what does Scripture have to say about the very gospel of God? the gospel that Christ followers proclaim? What is it that is at the heart of Jesus' gospel proclamation that we see here in Mark 1, 14 and 15? That's where we're going to spend our, the bulk of our time, looking first at the story found in these two short verses, and then arrive at the bottom line and finally be challenged with some takeaways. That is where the rubber meets the road for us. And by doing so, we're going to look at six what we might call gospel principles surrounding Jesus' gospel proclamation that are vital for us today. 
So let's look at the story. First, the setting of Jesus' gospel proclamation. Verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. You know, this brief summary here takes place after John was put in prison. More details surrounding John's imprisonment and then eventual execution is found in Mark 6. But the word for put in prison here actually means to be handed over, to be handed over. And it's the same term that's used later of Jesus being handed over to suffering. And also the same term that is used of believers, what will eventually happen to believers as well, that they would be handed over to the authorities when facing persecution to come. So this this concept of handed over not only includes a, a human element to it, but there's also a recognition of the sovereign hand of God at work as well. But John being handed over here is somewhat of an ominous sign that takes place here right at the outset of the gospel. Jesus' ministry begins with a reminder of the rejection that he too will face. And so John goes before Jesus, not only in his message, but in his destiny. So with John removed from the stage, Jesus firmly enters it. Jesus returns triumphantly from his combat with Satan in the wilderness and enters the region of Galilee. And there's a dramatic shift in focus at this point as all eyes are on Jesus. This also signals the beginning of Mark's first major section, that is, Jesus' ministry in and around the region of Galilee, his his home region. So Jesus does not withdraw to the desert like John, nor does he begin his ministry in the urban center or in the capital of Jerusalem In fact, as we'll see, there's a a complex relationship with Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents, in some ways, the status quo. It's threatened by Jesus' message. It fails to respond and, as we know, is overtaken by disaster in, in AD 70. But instead, Jesus travels around the towns and villages of Galilee, preaching there. Galilee was a a mountainous region of North Samaria, north of Samaria and west of the Jordan River, west of the Sea of Galilee as well, ruled by Herod Antipas at the time and known for wheat and olives, wine and fishing. Jesus' ministry begins in Galilee, and after his resurrection, he rallies his followers to Galilee. And it is from Galilee that the gospel then goes forward to the very ends of the earth. Proclaiming the good news of God. This is like a summary of Jesus' activity. The word for proclaiming here is the same as what John the Baptist did. And so in a way, it's almost highlighting the continuity between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry as well. John proclaimed the coming of the greater one. Jesus shows himself to be the greater one by proclaiming the good news of God as promised by the prophets. Good news, the gospel. The gospel is the narrative summary of Jesus' teaching and the content, the very content of his message. And what's more, the gospel here is the good news of God. This could either mean the good news that comes from God or the good news about God himself. And I believe it might mean both. The gospel that God brings is the gospel about himself. It is God's gospel. 
you know, picture like a, a modern day press conference of sorts. That's almost like what Mark is doing here at this moment. Now, when you hear press conference, you might think of all kinds of different things. I can't help but think about LeBron James, you know, saying, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach. Who knows what other uh, images a, a press conference conjures up for you. But that's, in a way, that's like what, what Mark is doing here. It's the equivalent of a press conference. It marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and is a kind of a billboarding of sorts of what his gospel proclamation was all about. So let's look at that, the summary of Jesus' gospel proclamation. Verse 15, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Two stunning announcements, closely bound up there. The first, the time has come. The ESV puts it, or the time is fulfilled. The emphasis here is not so much on a specific amount of time that has passed, but on the arrival of a specific moment in time a decisive moment, a fixed moment in time. And this phrase, the time has come, signals the fulfillment of the the hope expressed in the Old Testament of deliverance through the Messiah. Passages like Daniel 7, 22, where God promised a time would come when his people would possess the kingdom. In Isaiah 46, 13, it says, I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. The period of preparation through Israel and John was complete. Later, New Testament writers also speak of this fullness of time. I think you heard this read even as the benediction last week, but Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. I was trying to think of a good illustration that would go along with this whole notion of the time has come. And I asked my three-year-old son, he said, the time has come for body slam. (laughs) He's got some pretty good WWE moves, I don't know, but uh, he basically wanted to be, this is when he, I lift him up and kind of, you know, gently slam him down on the, on the couch. He loves that. Thanks, Sam. But here's another way of thinking about this. Think about a countdown before a spacecraft lifts off. Now, even this past weekend, our kids were playing with a, a little toy of the space shuttle, and I'm like, man, they're never going to know the space shuttle. Instead, they know, like, billionaires in space, I guess, but whatever. Um, think about a countdown, though, before a spacecraft lifts off. That's kind of like what happens here. The great countdown of history was over, and the time for blastoff had come. The second announcement is similar. It it is that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God could also be translated the kingship of God. The emphasis is on the kingly rule of God rather than the specific place where his rule is exercised. The kingdom is, the, is not a political, political entity. It's not bound up in particular geographical borders. No, the kingdom of God has to do with his sovereign kingly rule and, and reign over his people and his creation as he brings his plans to realization. The kingdom is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes as recorded in the law and the prophets and the writings 
Many of the Psalms speak of God as king. Psalm 47, 7 says, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. Among the prophets, there arose the hope of a time when rebellion against God would be defeated. The final establishment of the kingdom would come. Isaiah 24, 23 says, The moon will be dismayed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. Jesus shows himself to be the very herald found in Isaiah 52, 7 and 61, 1. Behind that is this notion of how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. Good news of God's rule that is present in Jesus, in Jesus himself. And by declaring the kingdom of God, in effect, Jesus is saying that there is no other earthly king. God is the king of all kings. In Christ, the kingdom had broken into the world, and it will only come in its complete fullness when he returns. There is a tension in the Gospels, in Scripture, between this, perhaps you've heard these terms before, the already aspect of the kingdom and the not yet. The already and the not yet. Some passages in Mark imply that the kingdom can be entered now, while other passages speak of entering it in the future. And while the fullness of the kingdom lies in the future, it has drawn near in the person of Jesus himself. I believe that is the point he makes here. The kingdom of God is not only what Jesus taught, but it is also found in his own life and ministry. The kingdom is central to his teaching, particularly in his parables, as we will see. And it is, it is key, is a key theme throughout Mark's gospel. And so this might be straining the analogy a bit, but think about that spacecraft that is blasting off. There's a bit of that involved too, where the kingdom is already and that liftoff has begun, but it is, it is not yet in orbit. It is not yet fully here. But the arrival of the kingdom is indeed good news. But with that good news, there is also judgment and salvation. And so God's gospel demands a response. That's where Jesus goes next. The summons of his gospel proclamation at the end of verse 15 is repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. These are two kind of closely connected imperatives. The first being repent. This means to turn from one's wayward ways in total surrender to God. This is grounded in the prophetic call to Israel to return to their covenant faithfulness and to be faithful to the Lord their God. Repent and believe. The second imperative, believe the good news. This kingdom, this kind of belief is not just an intellectual assent, an intellectual acceptance that the gospel is true. No, it is a response of trust and commitment to believe in Jesus and to follow him. And what this means for Jews and Gentiles alike is then spelled out in the rest of Mark's gospel. Picture a, a coin. Does anyone actually have a coin in their pocket? I, I was wondering if actually somebody had a coin going on, but uh, it doesn't appear that way. Maybe Jeff. Nope. He's <laughs> 
That's right, we don't, I guess we don't carry these around. Anyway, but picture a coin. Repentance and belief are like two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. Repentance involves what one turns from, and belief involves what one turns to. Repent and believe. It's echoed by Paul, for instance, in Acts 20, verse 21, when he writes, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who wish to participate in God's kingdom must repent and believe the good news. So church, here is the bottom line. I believe the fundamental truth that this passage teaches us is that God's pervasive gospel that Jesus proclaimed centers on Jesus, is summed up in the kingdom of God, and summons us to repent and believe. God's pervasive gospel that Jesus proclaimed centers on Jesus, is summed up in the kingdom of God, and summons us to repent and believe the gospel. What we're going to do in these six gospel principles is break that down in a little bit more detail. So first, the gospel is the gospel of God. The gospel originates in and is all about God. The gospel originates in and is all about God. The gospel that God brings is also the gospel about himself. Mark begins his gospel with the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And here Jesus proclaims the good news of God. This interplay reminds us that to speak of Jesus as the anointed Messiah and Son of God is to speak of God himself. This is scandalous right off the bat in Mark's gospel. The gospel originates in and is all about God. Second gospel principle, the gospel is pervasive in scope. The gospel is pervasive. The gospel is so much more than that what we might call that little message that sort of tips you into the kingdom and then you don't worry about it anymore. You kind of put it on a shelf until you're ready to inflict it upon the next person that needs to be pushed over the line of faith into the kingdom. No, the gospel church, the gospel is for all of life. We never graduate from the gospel. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, the gospel is not the ABCs of the faith, it is the A to Z of faith. I wonder if you wrote that before Amazon, because all I can picture is that like A to Z in the arrow, but I digress. Anyway, not the ABCs of the faith, but the A to Z of faith. But the problem is that for many, the gospel has been truncated to mean something more along the lines of the plan of salvation. And it is often presented as the gospel of individual salvation rather than the gospel of cosmic redemption. Scott McKnight has written a very challenging and thought-provoking book on this topic called The King Jesus Gospel. I recommend it. He states a compelling case for how we've reduced the gospel in many ways to this idea that I mentioned, this notion of this individual plan of salvation. 
and he really challenged me. There are some issues with the book, I would, I would say, but he really challenged me to see the full scope of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation, and in particular to see how Jesus' story completes the story of Israel found in the Old Testament, that we not decoupled the Old Testament from the New Testament. This is so important to us as a church family that one of our very ethos statements is just this, pervasive gospel, pervasive gospel. We preach a gospel that can go anywhere and change anything from the depths of our own souls to the ends of the earth. The gospel is pervasive in scope. Third, the gospel is inherently proclamational. Thank you for letting me make up a word there, but bear with me. The gospel is inherently proclamational. What do I mean by that? At its core, the gospel is good news to be shared. There is, there is a common quote that is often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that goes something like this, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. Have you heard that, that particular quote before? Well, first of all, it's debatable as to whether he said that. And second, I understand, I understand the sentiment behind that. But we need to remember, church, we need to remember that we have good news to share verbally. We have good news to shout from the rooftops. Isaiah 52, 7, I'll read it in its full, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. The gospel should not be one of our most closely kept secrets. It should be on our lips, but absolutely it should be shown through acts of love and deeds of faith, these that authenticate the gospel that we proclaim. So yes, there is very much a both and. I don't think it's, we're meant to pit one against the other, but let us remember that the gospel is inherently proclamational. We have good news to tell to others around us. Four, and perhaps most importantly of all, the gospel centers on Jesus himself. The gospel centers on Jesus himself. To preach the gospel is to preach Christ. In Mark 8, 35, he, Jesus pretty much says that he and the gospel are one and the same. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Putting these in close parallel with one another. The heart of the gospel Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared. The gospel centers on Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and alive. And as I maybe alluded to already, Jesus sometimes gets separated from his Jewish roots, rather than seeing his story as the completion of, the fulfillment of Israel's story. What often gets lost in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, is the phrase, according to the scriptures. We, you know, so easily will put those other phrases like on a statement, for instance, and we rightly should. But let us, let us not lose sight of the according to the scriptures, but Jesus 
connects his life with the history of God's people by saying, the time is fulfilled. Fifth gospel principle. The gospel is summed up in the kingdom of God. The heart of Jesus' gospel proclamation was the inbreaking of God's kingdom on earth. The time promised by God had come at long last. And remember, the kingdom of God has to do with his reign and rule over his people and his creation as his plans come to realization. And one passage that really gets to the heart of this is Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things, in heaven and on earth, under Christ. When the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in Christ. Injustice is essentially anything that is not representative of God's kingdom. And whenever the inbreaking of the gospel is proclaimed, wherever the inbreaking of the kingdom is proclaimed and practiced, there is going to be opposition. There is going to be pushback. But a day is coming like that in Ephesians 1.10 when God will unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. All things will be summed up in Christ. And so, in the in-between, we live now in that tension of the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. And so, sixth gospel principle, the gospel summons us to repent and believe to repent and believe. This is so simple, and yet it, we make it so much more difficult sometimes than it needs to be. But church, if Jesus were to begin his public ministry here with us today, now, what would he call us to repent of? Our materialism? Our worshiping of our kids? Our greed? Our viewing of explicit material? our biting and devouring one another even within the flock, our lying, our gossip, yes, all this, all this and more, all this and more. And he would do it with urgency just like then. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come near. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, would you hear these words today? Repent and believe the good news and if you would like to know more of what that means, if you would like to explore the very life of Christ, we would invite you to do so in one of our, in one of our discovery Bible studies. In fact, one of the things that you can do using the Church Center app, um, under the connection card, one of the options is, yes, I'm interested in exploring more of the life of Jesus in one of these discovery Bible studies. We would love to journey with you together and to see Jesus leap off the page, particularly in Mark's gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. At the same time, we need to remember that these two imperatives are present imperatives. They are continuous 
those, these are not just momentary actions or a one-time thing. No, this is a fundamental call to all of us, even those that bear the name of Jesus, to live in a state, of, a constant state of repentance and belief. It should be continual. It should be ongoing in our lives. And so, church, what do we need to repent of today? May our cry be like that of the character in Scripture that said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Repent and believe the good news. This then flows into the very call of the disciples in Mark 1, 16 through 20 that we will look at starting next week. This call to repentance and faith is a call to journey together in the costly way of discipleship. Church, God's pervasive gospel that Jesus proclaimed centers on Jesus is summed up in the kingdom of God and summons us to repent and believe. God's gospel begins with our creator ruling in splendor, speaking the universe into existence, mocking gods of wood and stone and exalted above his creatures. And he created us in his image like ambassadors of the king to represent his loving rule for all creation to see and to rule his good world as his vice regents. But we rebelled against our creator king, usurping the throne, and sin and death and decay were introduced into God's good world. Yet, God did not crush the rebellion No, instead he purposed to crush the head of the serpent through his coming one. The the proto-euangelion, that is the first gospel, is right there in Genesis 3.15. The one who would have his heel, the seed of the woman that would have his heel bruised but would crush the head of the serpent. God chose to put his rescue plan into motion by calling a people to himself. Beginning with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his people grew into a great nation. And the Lord was to be their king. And what did they do? They cried out, we want a king to rule over us like all the other nations. God gave them, a king. God gave them kings, but they wouldn't listen. And quickly realized that the human heart is bent toward tyranny. But during the reign of David, whose own own failings are on full display in God's word, we are given this magnificent promise of a one, the one who would come in the line of David and whose throne would be established forever. And the prophets envision God as the one who changes times and seasons, the one who removes kings and sets up kings. And the prophets envisioned this, this gospel, this, this kingdom to come, declaring how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption 
to sonship. Jesus came from lowly beginnings in Galilee, proclaiming the good news of the inbreaking of God's kingdom through himself. And he authenticated this message of the gospel through his miracles, through his healings, through his teachings, his parables on the kingdom before he was handed over to death, handed over in accordance with God's very purpose. He had thorns for a crown. He had a stick for a scepter. And he had a cross for a throne. And he was given a kingly burial amid pounds of spices and laid in a rich man's tomb. But three days later, he arose triumphantly from the grave, conquering sin and death. He rose as the conquering king and he regathered his followers in Galilee and tasked them with the this very message of heralding the kingdom of God among all people, heralding the kingdom. And what he does now is he gathers us into what we might call kingdom consulates, into churches like ours who represent his kingdom, who seek his kingdom, who proclaim and participate in his kingdom as we eagerly await the day when the king will return. On him is written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Oh, we look forward to that day while participating in his kingdom now. Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. Picture this in your eye, in your mind's eye. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that we do indeed have good news. Good news through your Son, Jesus Christ. He who was crucified, died, buried, has risen again, and is reigning and ruling at your right hand. And Father, would you find us faithful, O oh Lord, to the task of proclaiming and practicing your great gospel, your gospel, not only in our own hearts and in our lives and in our families and in our community, but to the ends of the earth. Father, stir us with this wide, pervasive gospel. Help us to grow greater grasp the heights and depths of your great love for us. And Father, would you cause us to continuously repent and believe? Would we be even more dedicated to this task because of your gospel at work in us? Lord, transform us through your gospel and lead us, Lord, in this in-between. Father, we pray all of this in the precious and matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Looking forward to his magnificent return. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.